0: Hello and welcome to the reading of the business record for Friday, March 19th. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. We'll start with this from the cover, Closer Look, Meet a Leader You Should Know. Chris Diebel, Director of Public Affairs of the Iowa Business Council, by Michael Crum. For many, Chris Diebel may be known as a founding partner of Bubba, the Southern Comfort Food Restaurant in downtown Des Moines. Last fall, Diebel switched gears when he took on the role of Director of Public Affairs of the Iowa Business Council. For Diebel, the move is a return to his roots in marketing and public relations, which included stints as an account executive for a communications firm in Los Angeles, event manager at an Urbandale hotel, marketing project manager, and later director of marketing for Orchestrate Hospitality Management, and Managing Director of Public Affairs for LPCA Public Strategies. He's still the largest shareholder at Bubba, and is heavily involved in high-level planning and marketing, and is in daily communication with the Bubba team. But he is not directly involved in the restaurant's daily operation. With the restaurant in the capable hands of General Manager Kate Willer and Chef Rob Urzal, Diebel said the time was right to move on to other challenges. Question. What are your goals in your new role with the Business Council? Diebel's answer. The Business Council's work is exciting to me because it addresses common sense issues facing the business community in a nonpartisan way. While the organization is comprised of Iowa's largest companies, the advocacy work we do has a positive impact on organizations of all sizes. I'm excited to help spread the word on these critical policy initiatives, as well as having the opportunity to amplify the compelling stories of our member companies. I'm looking forward to driving that narrative nationally With a targeted marketing campaign we're involved in this year to see about bringing people to iowa question what did you learn in the hospitality industry that will help you in your new position hospitality is a customer driven industry and public relations is too right it's a different form of communication and outreach but nonetheless the two are very similar I need to be responsive and proactive to members of the media and members of our organization in a way that one would expect a quality service person in hospitality to be to their customer in a restaurant or retail. All those core lessons you learn from the hospitality side can be applied to any job. It just so happens that I've had this dueling interest my whole life between hospitality and public relations. I may bring some of that small business perspective to the table, but I have a real appreciation because I have a vested interest in one of these small town businesses in the community being served by these big organizations. And I have a real appreciation for just how powerful they can be for their individual communities and the state of Iowa. Question, what lessons did you learn during 2020? The words that came out of 2020 for me were perseverance and ingenuity. You saw people say that they didn't know what's coming tomorrow, but they were going to be there, whether it was coming up with cocktail kits or special themed dinners or figuring out ways to wine dinners at home. We did a pop-up donut shop at Bubba, but you came up with creative ways to engage your customers and stay top of mind. The people who were going to make it out of this are the people who were constantly innovating and thinking about the next way to not just drive revenue, but protect their staff, grow or maintain their workforce. What can we do to responsibly grow our hours that will allow us to serve our family of employees better and also serve the community? And how can we do that in a fun way? Because in the darkest days of the pandemic, people needed something to smile about. Question. What is your management style or philosophy? I believe in the collaborative management style and encourage idea sharing and regular employee participation. I believe that helps a company grow and fosters team buy-in. It flushes out stronger solutions and encourages team members to take more responsibility for decisions and outcomes and results in an environment where everyone has skin in the game. Question. What book would you recommend? Life on the Line, a chef's story of chasing greatness facing death and redefining the way we eat by Grant Atchitz and Nick Kokonis. What's cool about this book is each chapter is written from a different partner's perspective and they even change the font to follow the voice of writing in that chapter. It chronicles the true story of Chef Grant Atchitz and his business partner Nick Kokonas. So you watch this creative genius chef tell his perspective and then you watch the finance guy in the business world who's funding it all and all these stories of adversity pop up and how they look at them differently, and ultimately address them together. At the height of his career, Chef Atchitz was diagnosed with basically terminal cancer, and they told him they were going to have to amputate his tongue, a pretty awful thing for a chef, and did an experimental treatment in Chicago and beat it, and then went on to become one of the most famous chefs in the world. It's a really cool story and you don't have to be a foodie to appreciate all those lessons of adversity, but also watching two absolutely different mindsets come together to create one of the most successful hospitality brands in history. At a glance, Diebel's hometown is Des Moines. He was born in Fort Worth, Texas. He has a master's in public administration at Drake University, bachelor of arts in journalism and mass communication also from Drake, he, his family, he has partner Jonathan Brenda Mule. His age is 40. Activities, cooking, entertaining, and travel. He may be reached at cdiebel at iowabusinesscouncil.org. The next column is On Leadership by Susan DeBaca, President and Group Publisher of BPC, Male Leaders. Honor Women's History Month by mentoring a woman at work. Two men changed the course of my life in my early 20s. When I was the executive director of a small nonprofit organization, these two board members took me out for lunch and suggested I apply to business school as my next career step. Both were successful, established CEOs, and they had seen leadership potential in me that I had not seen in myself. That encouragement led me to get my MBA and set me on a new path. As I read multiple reports about how the pandemic has disproportionately affected working women, I can't help but think about how male leaders influence and mentorship is critical for females in their organizations. Working women need support more than ever from male and female leaders. A recent report from leanin.org and McKinsey says 20% of women have, quote, considered downshifting their careers or leaving the workforce due to lack of flexibility at work, housework, and caregiving burdens and burnout, end quote. Reviewing and changing policy, providing support, and letting female employees know they are valued can make the difference between a woman remaining in her job or opting out of the workforce. Male allies have long been a vital factor in the advancement of women. From the early days of the women's suffrage movement in the mid-1800s, male champions helped women influence other men's acceptance of law and policy by speaking, writing, signing petitions, and funding projects, as well as mentoring and supporting women through struggles and violence. National Women's History Month and International Women's Day also involved male advocacy, in part because women had no ability to enact law or policy except through men who held those powers. The origins of these commemorated days stem back to March 8, 1857, when 15,000 women from New York City's garment factories organized a protest over poor working conditions, marching through the streets demanding shorter work hours, higher wages, voting rights, and an end to child labor. Challenging unfair and unsafe conditions through those protests ultimately led to improvements in working conditions and the establishment of the first Women's Day in 1911. But on March 25th of that year, the unsafe triangle shirtwaist factory in Greenwich Village burned Killing or injuring more than 200 women in one of the deadliest industrial disasters in our country's history. Following this tragedy, women influenced male allies in the legislature to push for change. Fortunately, they had the courage to act. Women have made great strides since the early days of suffrage, from securing the right to vote to advancements in education, safety, work, health, and life expectancy but there is still much to be done to advance the status of women and men have a vital role to play. Male leaders can make a difference by shaping workforce policy and culture to support gender equity, but championing and supporting individual women is also key. Many men are hesitant to mentor women today, but there are countless ways you can provide career development and advancement opportunities flexibility, or support for women in a professional manner. I have benefited from male leaders who believed in me. In honor of Women's History Month, consider mentoring a woman in your organization. Sometimes letting a colleague or employee know that you value her or see potential in her and encouraging her to pursue advancement can lead her to paths she has not even dreamed of. From the Insider Notebook, Bits and Bites of the Finer Side of Iowa Business, Drake's Griff Two Gets Limited Edition Bobblehead by Michael Crum. Bulldogs are known for being lazy but fierce, loving, and protective, and having an insatiable appetite for both food and life. But how about having their own bobblehead? When I learned that Griff Two, Drake University's prop popular live mascot, was getting his own bobblehead, I felt compelled to learn more. For full disclosure, my Bulldogs and Griff2 are friends, both on social media and in person. Yes, my dogs have played with Griff2, and it's hard not having it go to their heads, bobble or otherwise. Here's what we know about the Griff2 bobblehead. It was released this month by the National Bobblehead Hall of Fame and Museum in Milwaukee, the official licensee and maker of Drake and NCAA bobbleheads. The limited edition Griff II bobbleheads are individually numbered to 2021, and they can be purchased at the Drake University Bookstore in the Olmsted Center, on the Drake campus, and through the National Bobblehead Hall of Fame and Museum's online store. It's the first bobblehead for Griff II, who assumed the mascot harness last summer, following in the footsteps of Griff a.k.a. the OG or original Griff to his family and friends. The bobblehead shows Griff 2 sitting on a base shaped as the Drake University logo. Griff 2 is wearing a harness that also shows the Drake Bulldogs logo. But Griff 2 is more than just the live mascot for the Bulldogs. He's also a certified therapy dog. Aaron Bell, Drake's Associate Marketing Director and Manager of the live mascot program, said in a news release announcing the sale of the Bobbleheads that Griff 2 has a, quote, big personality that will represent Drake University well, end quote. He is everything we were looking for in finding the best possible successor, Bell said of Griff 2, who is active on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Griff 2 is Drake's third official live mascot, succeeding Griff, who served as live mascot for five years before he retired at the age of eight and Porterhouse, who was crowned the beautiful bulldog during the Drake relays in 2009, and went on to serve as live mascot until his death in 2013. According to Drake's website, quote, Griff 2 adores people and can never get enough attention. He has an insatiable appetite and loves to take long naps, punctuated by moments of mischief, End quote. Griff 2 who will be three in June, is involved in recruiting efforts, student activities, alumni functions, and athletic events, and proudly uses the hashtag, I am so proud to be your dog, in his social media posts with Drake students and faculty. Griff too has his own bobblehead. just don't tell my dogs. Our next story, jury trial in well-marked discrimination lawsuit set for March. 2023 by Joe Gardiaz Plaintiffs in a racial discrimination lawsuit filed in May 2020 against Wellmark Blue Cross and Blue Shield will have to wait two more years for a jury trial in that case to begin. The case Janice Lintz et al. versus Wellmark Inc. et al. alleges that African Americans working at the Des Moines-based health insurance company were systematically denigrated and harassed denied training and mentorship opportunities that were given to white employees, and were held to higher and more subjective standards than other employees. The trial date was recently set for March 13, 2023, just over two years from the date of the trial scheduling conference held in late February. Roxanne Conlon, the attorney representing the three plaintiffs, said the case's complexity and the statewide backlog for trial courts due to the pandemic are both factors in the long interval until trial. But she's also grateful for the time she'll have to complete the discovery process in the case, she said. Wellmark officials have denied the allegations made in the complaint and have said the allegations in the lawsuit are, quote, unfounded and without merit, end quote. In addition to filing a motion to dismiss that was denied by the judge, Wellmark's attorneys filed for an appeal to the Iowa Supreme Court, which was also denied, followed by a, following, a filing for a rehearing before the Supreme Court, which was also denied, Conlin noted. With the trial date now set, she said, This is the first time that we get to proceed on the merits of the case jury trials in Iowa were suspended for much of 2020, resulting in about only one-third of the usual number of jury trials, which average about 750 per year, the Des Moines Register reported in February. In-person jury trials resumed on February 1st after being suspended a second time in November. According to data provided by the Iowa Judicial Branch, The number of pending cases on the docket statewide at the end of December 2020 totaled nearly 265,000, or 7% more than the number of cases pending a year earlier. In the meantime, we have an enormous amount of work, Conlon said. The first thing we have to do is get a plaintiff class certified. Through the discovery process, it's determined whether the case can proceed as a class action or whether it will just involve the three employees in the initial complaint. Conlin said her three clients are still employed with Wellmark. And really, their lives have not been ruined, she said. As far as they tell me, they have not been victims of retaliation, and that's a very good thing. You can read a business record article about the lawsuit at bit.ly forward slash 3BDHJHX. Our next column is from Emily Barsky, editor of the business record. What legal trends should employers be thinking about? Five attorneys weigh in. On March 11th, 2020, Kelsey Knowles, a shareholder and attorney at Bell & McCormick, was among a group of panelists for what would be the business record's last in-person event before having to switch to virtual settings to mitigate the spread of COVID-19. That panel, focused on legal matters, not surprisingly turned to questions about the novel coronavirus and whether it might present challenges that employers should know about. In just a few short days before the panel gathered, many across the country and in Iowa began realizing the virus's threat. And just hours before the business records event started, the World Health Organization announced the global health emergency was now officially a pandemic. Questions during the panel discussion included, could they take the temperature of their employees? And were they allowed to selectively let some people work remotely while requiring others to come in? Later that day, in a prime-time Oval Office address, President Donald Trump banned travel from Europe. It was among many other news updates that endlessly dropped that afternoon and evening, like actor Tom Hanks contracting the virus and the NBA suspending its season. Now a year later, we know more about the virus and its deadly toll, taking more than 5,600 Iowa lives to date and its unprecedented toll on the economy. Yet the future is still uncertain, and we were curious about what changes the pandemic has created within employment law. We talked with Knowles to reflect and look forward. Knowles said requests from employers she counsels have varied while they've navigated the unprecedented waters of COVID-19. Early questions she received included things like, whether they could tell an employee to stay home if they just got back from a cruise, requirements for paying health insurance for those no longer working, and all kinds of questions about accommodations. There was a period of time where questions were focused on mandatory vaccination when the va- vaccines first started to come out in December, Knowles said. Now it is more a question of reopening and do we ask people whether they've been vaccinated and do those sorts of things. So it's very much been this evolution of a question of the day, question of the week, question of the month, she said. It's not as though Knowles and others working in employment law haven't seen big changes before, but the pandemic's effects were quick and sweeping, whereas even major Supreme Court decisions or IRS changes usually took some time while they were being debated. I tell people all the time when I talk to them, we don't have cases that we can look at to tell you what other people have done, she said. And while there have been some cases to look to for guidance, they were often not in a global pandemic. The biggest change is that work cultures are simply different now. Knowles said, I think one of the things it's done is made everybody a little bit more aware that the person you see in the office is not the whole person. Prior to last March, it was easier to sort of draw the line and say, this is what we are at work and these are our considerations, and that was it. I think the pandemic has made people maybe a little bit more compassionate, she said. Employers could see, for example, that someone had three kids and needed the flexibility. But she said employers she counseled were also forced to draw the line at times when it came to balancing compassion and an employee's ability to fulfill job responsibilities. Here are some of the things Knowles said employers should have on their radar as they move forward. Many corporate employers didn't have to think about OSHA regulations as often as perhaps those in the construction or manufacturing industries. But now employers need to be thinking more broadly about workplace safety and hazards as guidelines continue to change. In regard to continued virtual settings, Knowles said, I think that one of the things that you should be aware of is you can get this window into your employees' personal lives, and that can be good and bad. You might learn, for example, that an employee is in a protected class and it's important to separate what you learn about people for decision-making so that it's not riddled with bias. Employers should also remember to pay close attention to rules for hourly employees as work schedules have shifted for those working remotely. There may also be changes in sick leave policies in the future. The pandemic has made people realize that the American cultural ideal of pushing through mild colds, showing up to work even when someone in your household isn't feeling well, or perfect attendance incentives may not actually be in everyone's best interest. Knowles said, This last year has demonstrated that it is probably something we need to figure out and employers can do a lot to keep their workplaces healthier by giving some thought to what those policies look like and then how they implement them culturally in their workplace. I think that's one shift that a lot of workplaces are going to have to kind of go through as they come back into the office. With new administration at the federal level, there are sure to be new policy changes to keep an eye on. For example, the Trump administration had some regulations with contractor status that may be changing. More coverage from the conversation with Knowles will be included in upcoming publications. And for other trends to know, the business record asked a few area legal professionals, tell us about one legal trend the business community should know about. Here's what they said. Jess Vilsack, attorney at Nymaster Good. Who is responsible if customers personal information is compromised? Last year, Russian hackers conducted a supply chain attack on SolarWinds, a company selling widely used network monitoring software. The attack led to data breaches at organizations worldwide, including the Pentagon, the National Security Agency, the Federal Aviation Administration, NATO, the European Parliament, Microsoft, and Cisco. Companies have made significant investments in their internal data security systems in recent years. However, a supply chain attack doesn't attack a company's own data security systems. It attacks service providers that a company purchases software and services from, and the service providers that those service providers purchase from. The attack cascades until the hackers find a weakness somewhere in the supply chain. When a supply chain attack compromises a company's customer's personal information, who is responsible for paying for remedial measures like credit monitoring, identity restoration, and fraud insurance? Anyone responsible for protecting their company's data should review their service provider contracts. Those contracts almost certainly contain traditional language. The service provider promises to provide a data security program that contains, quote, appropriate safeguards or is, quote, designed to protect your company's data. If that's the case, your company will have a difficult time holding those service providers responsible for a data breach and will likely be forced to pay for the damage caused by the service provider's failure to prevent the data breach. How do you fix the problem? You require your company's service providers to provide a data security program that quote, ensures the security of your company's data. And to agree any software and services your company is purchasing will be free from viruses. And you make sure the service providers have appropriate indemnification obligations and cyber liability insurance coverage. At first, your service providers will complain Remind them that the world has changed. They will come around eventually because they know you are right. From Lori Chesser, Davis Brown Law Firm, Immigration Department Chair. Don't take an administrative no for an answer. As an immigration attorney, I help my clients navigate federal administrative agencies. These agencies have significant discretion in how they interpret the laws they are charged with following and enforcing. An adverse decision can be appealed, but, at least in the immigration arena, the appeal goes to another part of the same agency. A recent trend in the immigration context is to take administrative agencies to court. The Administrative Procedures Act, while it sounds boring, has been a boon to immigrants and their employers who are hurt by agency interpretations that vary from long-standing practice or exceed the bounds of their discretion. Besides reining in agency discretion, the APA requires that new rules or changes to existing rules must be done only after public notice and comment. Failure to follow the APA has resulted in both major policy initiatives and individual decisions being overturned. It and other laws also have prevented unreasonable delay in deciding applications in many instances. This trend is not limited to immigration as the APA covers all federal agencies. The takeaway is that businesses should not overlook litigation against federal agencies in the right situation as a strategy to achieving their goals. You're listening to the reading of the business record for Friday, March 19th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Continuing with our article on legal trends, from Beat Tris Matekojo, attorney at Timmer and Judkins, social justice is sparking litigation. I analyze human dramas that unfold across our 99 counties. I sue businesses, schools, and individuals that discriminate on purpose or on accident for a living. My craft teases bias out of people and patterns of decisions. An emerging trend I've identified as a litigator is a social justice spark in our communities leading to more cases. I profit from our collective weaknesses, but business leaders should do what they can to channel that spark into corporate social responsibility. Looking past the current legislative climate, I see an Iowa more willing to self-reflect and accept accountability for the biases we all have. As much as they like to claim, it's not a Democrat or liberal phenomenon, it's a human phenomenon. The spark was ignited by national politics, but I see a sustained, low-burning flame of courage and a desire for a better future for our kids. That metaphorical heat is encouraging folks to speak up on behalf of others with respect to microaggressions, implicit bias, and the isms related to race, gender, etc., at school, at work, and in public. Iowa will improve when business leaders, parents, neighbors, teachers, students, strangers, and kids decide one by one to unlearn harmful narratives and stereotypes we all inherited. Iowan Robert Roosboom Dykstra wrote Bright Radical Star a book about our state's historical accomplishments and capacity to be ahead of the social justice curve. I have faith and anticipate the low-burning flame will motivate enough of us to continue rejecting and healing from our inherited biases, an ill much more pervasive than COVID, which threaten to dampen our collective progress. Sometimes I feel alone in sustaining this low-burning flame, but I'm always humbled to see fellow Iowans doing the hard work of self-reflection and personal accountability to advance toward our bright radical future. And from Nick Smithberg, Executive Director of Iowa Legal Aid, it will be harder for some to put their lives back together. The events of the last year will leave a lasting mark on the practice of law. COVID-19 dramatically accelerated several workplace trends. Remote work and flexible scheduling are now the norm rather than the exception. Tools such as electronic signature and remote notarization are now widely used. Court hearings over Zoom are commonplace. These transformations will endure as we transition to the new quote normal of the post-pandemic world. At the same time, The inequities in our society that were exposed and exacerbated by the events of 2020 persist. The same families that found remote learning difficult, if not impossible, because of the digital divide, also experienced challenges accessing the justice system during the pandemic. Moving forward, it is clear the fruits of the Zoom economy will not be shared equally. Iowans working in retail and hospitality are unlikely to benefit from flexible scheduling or remote work. Telecommuting is not an option for a single parent working in a fast-food franchise. Changes reshaping the legal profession are of little importance to the thousands of Iowans who cannot afford the legal representation necessary to protect their most basic needs. Iowa Legal Aid has helped thousands of Iowans to recover from natural disasters, such as flooding, tornadoes, and in 2020, a derecho. We have learned that it can take months, if not years, for families to recover from catastrophe. The aftermath from the pandemic will be no different. Thousands of Iowans have been devastated by unemployment, the threat of eviction, and many other effects of the economic fallout of the pandemic. Even as the economy begins to reopen, members of the business community should remember that it will be harder for some in our community to put the pieces of their lives back together. And so, as the legal profession enters a new and exciting chapter, it is more important than ever that members of the bar remember our collective obligation to ensure that meaningful access to justice is a reality for all. Congratulations to the 2021 class, the business records 40 under 40. Nola Egner davis of the Polk County Health Department. Shaima Ali, Wells Fargo. Rita Bettis-Austin, the ACLU of Iowa. Leah Brandon with ChildServe. Ben Buttsky with Buttsky Birch Construction. Kenya calderon Cerrone with Green State, Green State Credit Union. Lindsay Chase, Holmes Murphy & Associates. Tyler Coe, Whitfield & Eddie Law, PLC. Jen Cross, Great Outdoors Foundation. Alexis J. Davis, United Way of Central Iowa and the Pyramid Theater Company. Dylan DeClercq with Can Play; Goizane Essane-Mullen with RBI Marketing. Anthony Ferguson Jr., West Des Moines Community Schools. Molly Hansen, RDG Planning & Design. Eric Heininger, Eden and Fundraising Consulting. Ben Keenan, Principal with Caldwell Banker. Julie Kenney with the Iowa Department of Agriculture and Land Stewardship. Megan Lewis, Corteva agri Gregory Lynn at Drake University. Colleen R. McRae, Nymaster Good, PC. Kendra Marshall, Salmon's Financial Group. Corey McAnally with Principal Financial Group. Elizabeth Meyer, Davis Brown Law Firm, Manisha Padel, the City of Des Moines, Rachel Fundstein with Holmes Murphy & Associates, Courtney Reyes with One Iowa, Jennifer A. Rupia with ITC Midwest LLC, John Sargent with Todd & Sargent Inc., Megan L. Srinivas, University of North Carolina Institute of Global Health and Infectious Diseases. Dave Stone with the United Way of Central Iowa. Emily A. Stork with Banker's Trust Company. Amy Strutt, Wells Fargo. Ruffin Chakunti with Des Moines University. Christine Thompson, the Greater Des Moines Partnership. Manny Toribio McClure. Melissa Vine with Beacon of Life. Casey Vogel with Community Choice Credit Union. Lang Von Reif, Akili Design and Marketing Services. Michelle Yoshimura Smith with Wells Fargo, and Elizabeth F. Zalatel with Wells Fargo Bank National Association. The 40 under 40 alumnus of the year is David Stark, president and CEO of Unity Point Health in Des Moines. These folks will be honored at a virtual event on Wednesday, April 7th from 4 to 6 p.m. You can register today at businessrecord.com forward slash 40 next an essay from emily barsky young women can and are leading i have a vivid memory that has shaped how i view the world and what i want the world to become the memory is one of many that have made me want more educators more bosses and more leaders to empower young women i decided to talk with my professor after class was finished i had received an a on a recent paper but it wasn't a perfect score. I wanted to understand what I could do better. It was a four-week community college class on modern literature that was very fast-paced. We had to read Grapes of Wrath in four days and Hamlet in two. Your high school teachers must have said you were a good writer, the professor told me. The rest of the dialogue became a blur as I internalized the comment. Perhaps the comment wouldn't have been a big deal to anyone else, but it was a turning point for me. That's because I was 15 years old at the time and still in high school. I wouldn't take the high school writing courses for two more years, but I was in the literature class because I was working toward earning my associate's degree in mass communications before graduating from high school. I was also on the swim team and went to two hours of practice, three hours of class, and then home to do homework for additional online courses. All in the middle of the summer when many of my peers were doing, well, anything but that. As I look back at what I chose to focus on as a teenager, I am proud of myself. But at the time, I had a lot of internal conflicts. Being an ambitious and smart girl girl, never felt cool. But why would it? It seemed nearly every movie or show, at least at the time, showed the only way to be a cool girl was to attract the interest of boys. I wouldn't learn about the Bechdel test until years later in media and diversity classes. It measures the representation of women in fiction by asking whether a work features at least two women who talk to each other about something other than a man. Hint, the numbers are improving but still aren't great thus the professor's comment was more than a nice confidence boost it was an affirmation to me that my age didn't matter and that being a smart girl wasn't all that bad either granted if the professor had known that i was a 15 year old her approach may have been different when addressing me her comment freed me from being constrained to what adults and peers assumed 15 year old girls ought to be doing with their summers and allowed me to authentically pursue my passion. That comment was a spark that fueled a fire. I often think back to how I felt in that moment when I face microaggressions, subtle acts of discrimination, as a young woman in a leadership role. I often wonder, if we collectively stopped limiting girls and young women with both hidden and overt barriers, wouldn't we all reap the benefits? What I just described of my teenage years is riddled with experiences afforded to me because I am white and come from a middle-class family that supported my passions. But this only underscores the fact that if girls from privileged backgrounds face challenges, then we have exponential work to do in helping girls from underrepresented backgrounds. I've come to learn that we all have differences in what we find offensive because each of us has faced a different reality. The bottom line is this. If someone is offended by something, it's likely because they've faced a trying circumstance that perhaps we might not have experience with. We need to respect their reality even when we can't always understand it ourselves. So please understand, that the following thoughts are my own, based on my own values and previous life experiences. I remember being told by a former male supervisor that I would care about my career until I had kids and then I wouldn't anymore. Though I don't yet have children and I'm as uncertain as anyone about what the future holds, the comment seemed off base at the time and still does now. I have always cared about my career and I don't see that changing anytime soon. As I've thought back on comments I've received like this over the years, I have realized that sexism was very much at play. I also remember a time in college when I went to report on a men's basketball game out of state. I was the only woman reporter there and had to ask to find the restroom because it wasn't obvious where one was. It turns out, It wasn't obvious because there wasn't one. The only place for women in the press area to relieve themselves required you to walk behind the press conference podium in front of everyone to use a women's restroom, which was actually a men's restroom with women handwritten on a sheet of paper taped over the men's restroom sign. Bathroom discrimination is something non-binary folks deal with far more often and with far graver circumstances than my one encounter. But I've thought back to that restroom experience several times when I've been in a situation where attempts to include underrepresented people have been dismal at best. It is not enough just to offer space if doing so doesn't go to the extent of making people feel welcome and valued. Like many microaggressions dealt with for the first time, I haven't always immediately pinpointed why I was offended. But the wisdom that came with time and education, and unfortunately facing more adversity, has helped me put past experiences in perspective to understand why I took offense. On several occasions in my current and previous roles, I've had people make assumptions about my job responsibilities as editor, sometimes even immediately after my telling them that I lead the newsroom. They ask what I cover as a reporter or wonder who is actually in charge. The question they actually want to ask, I can only presume, is how can someone so young be a leader? It's similar to any other microaggressions, such as telling an immigrant that they speak English really well. It may be meant as a compliment, but is actually layered with bias because of the implication that someone doesn't meet our stereotypical expectations. Young leaders face this challenge all the time. At our 2020 90 Ideas in 90 Minutes event, Tanner Krauss, now CEO of Come and Go, talked about it in one of our breakout rooms on Zoom. Young leaders often have to prove they're worthy of being in a position to make decisions and supervise team members who are often older or more experienced than them. While all young leaders face these challenges, young women in positions of power face particularly high cultural barriers, and only more so if they are of color, LGBTQ, or living with a disability. I once saw a tweet from someone claiming Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Democrat from New York, couldn't possibly know anything about policy because she took office at age 29, wasn't married, and had no children. Political beliefs aside, this person degraded Ocasio-Cortez's intelligence simply because she was a young woman. The underlying assumption is that if you're young, you don't know enough to be in charge. And if you're a young woman, you had better maintain your status as a wallflower because your professional strengths are far less important than your ability to attract a partner and produce offspring. Let me challenge those assumptions with a philosophy on leadership that many of us, including me, already believe. A leader is never the most knowledgeable person in the room and rather should have a team of smart individuals fully capable of doing their jobs with the right direction. Leaders don't know it all, but they do know how to be strategic, flexible, supportive, and organized. Skills that aren't necessarily tied to any given years of experience or any gender. Put simply, while the value of experience certainly can add to one's leadership skills, it isn't a prerequisite. Young people have fresh perspectives that can be just as valuable as experience in some cases. And who are we kidding? If leaders of any age or gender think they know it all, then we're all doomed in this ever-evolving world. Student affairs professional Sierra Graham wrote about the challenges young women face as leaders in the Seattle Times. This part of her piece stood out to me. Quote, if you're assertive and direct as a young leader, it could be even more of a challenge to get buy-in from people, and you may even have older colleagues challenging your authority and position, quote. If young women aren't allowed to be too assertive as leaders, but also have to show enough confidence to be perceived as competent, it seems we're between a rock and a hard place. This isn't the fault of young women, but rather the unfair standards our society sets for them as leaders. Even with the feminist movement, young women can be made to feel as though their voice doesn't matter as much as those older than them because they didn't face the same level of oppression growing up. This mindset fails to recognize that while young women may not have experience of some of the oppression their mothers and grandmothers experienced, they face unique challenges. Today's young women came of age in a world where idealism and comparison are impossible to ignore with social media and have faced two major economic crises riddled with gender disparities within the past two decades at the start of their careers. Until we realize that on the generational spectrum, sexism is simply different, not necessarily better or worse, We can't help young women with the barriers they face in becoming leaders, and we can't hear the valuable insight they have for making the world better for everyone. Young women are more than capable of being great leaders. They just need opportunities. And that doesn't mean just elevating them into leadership roles. It means allowing them to succeed once they're there. Here are just a few things we can do to get us there. If we know young women find it particularly hard to be assertive, make a point to ask them what they think instead of putting all the pressure on them to speak up in a society that has discouraged them from doing so. We know research shows many women don't apply for positions if they aren't 100% qualified, while men are much more likely to go for it. So let's make a concerted effort to encourage young women to seek promotions and go out on a limb for a new job opportunity. Celebrate leadership skills like organization and willingness to help others. Look for ways that someone has quietly led rather than always giving the squeaky wheel the grease. Ask young women in our organizations how they perceive oppression and what they think should be done about it. We know that today's young people generally want to be themselves at work. Stop placing so much emphasis on what a woman wears or how she does her hair and start looking at what values and strengths she holds. There is not one style a woman must assume to be a good leader, and in fact, having one in mind may be especially limiting for women of color, immigrants, or LGBTQ women. And for Pete's sake, stop making any assumptions about a woman's personality or intelligence based on whether or not she is married or has kids. Young women, of course, have to be willing to lead and make their voices heard. But let's create an encouraging environment where they can do so. I am grateful for mentors and colleagues who have supported me, but I want to see more of them. The more young women we have represented in leadership, the more likely we are to see women break glass ceilings in some of the most traditionally male-dominated arenas. I want a world where girls feel empowered to dream of being leaders. Heck, where girls can be leaders. I want a world where girls can be unapologetically smart, ambitious, and assertive. I want a world where they know that there is no age limit to success. And most importantly, I want a world where girls have to work hard to become leaders, but don't have to face unnecessary sexist barriers along the way. From the record's leader spotlight, Mid-American Energy Company has named Kelsey Brown as its new president and CEO, effective January 26th. The move coincided with Pacific Gas and Electric Company naming Brown's predecessor, Adam Wright, as its Executive Vice President of Operations and Chief Operating Officer, effective February 1st. International data compliance software firm, Workiva, has named Jill Clint as Chief Financial Officer, following Stuart Miller's retirement as Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer after seven years, the Ames Company announced. Bellin McCormick has announced Espnola, Nola, Cartmill, as the new president of the law firm. And that does it for today's reading of the business record for Friday, March 19th. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. Thanks for listening.
1: pharmacy health headlines. Flu season should be winding down, but the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention are warning about a second wave of influenza peaking in the southeastern U.S. Earlier this year, tests showed that the most common strain of flu virus was H1N1. Now, however, the H3N2 strain is becoming more common. That's the strain that caused such a terrible flu season last year. Both strains are covered in this year's flu vaccine, and experts report that the flu shot reduced the number of cases that needed medical attention by 47%. There is a new oral antiviral drug this year called Zofluza. One dose is all that's necessary to shorten the duration of influenza symptoms.
2: The first really new antidepressant recently won FDA approval for treatment-resistant depression. S-ketamine nasal spray will be sold under the brand name Spravato. Physicians and patients have been eagerly awaiting the arrival of this new type of antidepressant. They may be shocked by the price. People starting on this medication will need twice a week dosing for the first month. The list price is roughly $600 to $900 per dose. That means the initial month could cost as much as $6,800. After that, People will require once-weekly or twice-monthly nasal spray administration. Those costs would range from $2,300 to $3,500. At the end of a year, spravado could end up costing $45,000. Some insurance companies may balk at that expense.
1: For years, health experts have been telling people that exercise is critical for good health and that walking is great exercise. Dog ownership can contribute. People who walk their dogs regularly get more exercise than people without pets. A study published in JAMA Surgery highlighted a downside of this otherwise pleasant activity, however. Dog ownership has increased in the U.S. over the last decade, but so have broken bones among older people out walking their dogs. Such fractures doubled between 2004 and 2017, with the majority of broken bones in women. About half of the breaks were in arms, wrists, or fingers. The other fractures, unfortunately, were more concerning. About 17% of the broken bones were hips, a situation that can have serious negative consequences for a person's mobility or even survival. The scientists recommend obedience training for pets so that they don't tug at the leash suddenly and tip a person over. In addition, it makes sense to match the dog and its temperament to the strength of the
2: owner. Week after week, the FDA has announced recalls of contaminated blood pressure drugs called angiotensin receptor blockers, or ARBs. So many lots of valsartan, herbisartan, and losartan have been removed from the market that there are serious shortages. To cope with this growing problem, the FDA has expedited the review of additional R products. This week, the agency announced that it had approved a new generic Valsartan from Alchem Laboratories in India. The FDA reports that its evaluation of Alchem's manufacturing process does not indicate a likelihood of contamination with nitrosamine carcinogens.
1: New technology that allows for non-invasive imaging of the retina may allow eye doctors to diagnose Alzheimer's disease. The retina is richly supplied with blood through a dense network of fine blood vessels. In Alzheimer's disease, however, this network thins and becomes more sparse. Possibly this reflects what's happening elsewhere in the brain as well. The imaging is optical coherence tomography and geography. Researchers at the Duke Eye Center compared the retinas of 39 people with Alzheimer's disease to the retinas of 37 people with mild cognitive impairment and 133 people with healthy cognitive function. In addition to the loss of tiny blood vessels in the retina, a specific layer of the retina was thinner in people with Alzheimer's disease. These changes did not show up in people with mild cognitive impairment. This is the second time within the past few months we've heard about the possibility that optical coherence tomography angiography may offer an early diagnosis for Alzheimer's disease. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week.